Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference on PERM slash labor certification guidance dealing with recruitment issues. At today's panel, you, we have a great team with Derek Seval, a member of the firm, who focuses his practice almost exclusively on PERM and labor certification issues. He's been with the firm over 10 years at this point. The second panelist that we're having today is Jessica Beaver, another brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorney. And more important than the brilliance or the age or the experience or the is the passion and the commitment to help employers and companies and individuals accomplish their great American dream for the employees of living in this great country and, and to help companies become more successful with a globally talented workforce. And one way to sponsor the employee from the company's point of view is the PERM labor certification process. And in the PERM, which is the Permanent Electronic Review Management, or the PERM process, which is the first stage in the three stages to obtain the green card, the PERM ends up actually becoming probably the most tricky, complex, complicated part of the process with a zillion small little rules starting from the prevailing wage determination to the do's and don'ts and what to do and how do you as an employer ensure that you are dotting your I's, crossing your T's and doing everything right because majority of the cases that we at the Murthy Law Firm get with the denials from other lawyers and law firms are when the PERM or the labor certification is denied, the person has lost two or three or four years with appeals and everything else. And then they come to us to try to clean up the mess here at the Murthy Law Firm. And while it's always an honor and a pleasure to help a business, an employer, an individual, it is so much less expensive to do it right the first time to understand what you're doing and how we can solve the problems. So today's overview, we're going to discuss, give you a quick overview of the labor certification process and what is the purpose of testing the labor market, what is required, what, we do, what do we mean by an able, willing, and available or qualified U.S. worker, which will give the employer reason if you don't find an already available and qualified worker to be able to proceed with hiring the foreign national. The role of the attorney or the law firm that's helping you as an employer with the labor certification process and you as an employer, your role in the PERM labor cert process and the best practices, the do's and don'ts for recruitment. And then finally, how to prepare the recruitment report so that hopefully if we do everything right, you as the employer will end up obtaining that much coveted PERM approval so that we can then file the I-140, file the 485 when the priority dates become current and your employee will get the green card. But in the meanwhile, you have access to this brilliant, talented team of workforce uh, of workers so that your conti company continues to make a huge profit and is extremely successful in the marketplace. 
So with that broad overview and introduction, I'm going to request Derek to tell us a little bit about what is the purpose for an employer having to test the U.S. labor market. Sure. So to obtain an approval of a labor certification, the employer must prove that the employee's sponsorship will not prevent the hiring of a qualified U.S. worker. The purpose of interviewing the applicant is to determine if there are any U.S. workers who are able, willing, available, and qualified for the position. The Department of Labor also wants to make sure that the foreign national will not displace U.S. workers or adversely affect the wages and working conditions of U.S. workers. So, Derek, the first thing that you mentioned I see is able. When you're looking at to see if the uh, potentially U.S. worker is able to perform the job, this means are they able to perform in the normally accepted manner the duties involved in the occupation as customarily performed by other U.S. workers similarly employed? This sometimes is brought up during the recruitment while you're looking at resumes and if you have to contact, which we'll talk about that in a few minutes, if they're able to perform the job duties by asking them, you know, questions to see if they have the knowledge and ability to perform the job duties. Okay, thank you so much, Jessica. So let's move on to what is, so that's the definition of an able worker, if the person is able to perform the jobs. So Derek, what does it mean for an employee to be a U.S. worker to be considered willing to do the job? Sure. So by the time the employer has, at this point, has established the job title, duties, requirements, salary, and conditions of employment. So the question is, is the candidate willing to accept the job as offered? The other question is, is, it, is he willing or he or she willing to accept the salary offered? Or is the candidate willing to accept the location of the job? If travel or relocation is required for the position, the candidate also has to be willing to travel or relocate. So the conditions have already been established, and we have to make sure that the candidate is actually willing to take this job. Okay. Yeah, and more importantly, we also have to make sure that the candidate is available to take this job. Um, potentially, if they're still earning the degree that's required, they're not available at this time, so therefore they do not, they're not available to take the job. Um, it's now, you know, not in the future not in four months, not graduation, that type of thing. Similarly, like I was just speaking, are they qualified? Do they meet those education requirements? That means have they completed the degree at the time that you are interviewing them? Do they also similarly meet the experience requirements as listed for the position? Also, any special requirements that the employer has uh, listed out in that section H14, um, making sure not to ask any requirement that is actually not listed in the position. And in doing so, you want to make sure that they are qualified, like I mentioned before, it kind of ties in with the ABLE, is to show that they have the knowledge and ability to perform these job duties. Basically, you as the employer must show that any worker disqualified for the knowledge and ability could not be trained in a reasonable amount of time. All of you out there are probably wondering, what is this reasonable amount of time? While the regulations do not define what the reasonable amount of time is, however, at the Department of Labor, can um, conclude that the applicant could have taken a simple online tutorial or training course to acquire the skill, it is possible that the DOL will conclude that the applicant could have performed the job duties during a reasonable period of on-the-job training. Very interesting. I mean, it's really fascinating. So basically, if the U.S. employer, the employers who are listening to the phone call today, are able to find a ready, available, qualified U.S. worker to do the same job, there goes the labor certification. 
they would have to start all over again. But if they're not able to find ready, qualified, able, willing workers, then we can continue with the processing of the perm so that it gets approved. So as you can see, this is really tricky and complex. It's it's not that easy to be able to continue with the labor certification by showing that nobody else pretty much that looked and applied for this advertisement was able to respond and was ready, willing, able, and qualified to do the job for this. So what's a U.S. worker? That's the next question. And the answer is it doesn't always have to be a U.S. citizen because most people say, oh, it has to be a U.S. citizen. Oh, no, 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 no. It can be a U.S. worker, a U.S. citizen, a U.S. national, or even a foreign national who is legally permitted to work permanently in the United States. For example, a candidate who has filed the I-485 and has a, an employment authorization document, that person would actually be available to do the job even though the person is not yet a U.S. citizen. A lot of asylum and refugee workers who have work or work authorization, they would qualify. And I would, I would caution employers not to let um, things like the state workforce agency that may ask initial questions to applicants before they send you the resume that they have, they're legally permitted to work because some state work, state workforce agency postings ask if they have work authorization to be in the United States, which doesn't necessarily um, exclude those four nationals that are on H-1B. So it is a good idea for employers to still ask, you know, the question if the applicant requires sponsorship to work in the United States just to cover their basis. And these kinds of questions, hopefully, if you have a good employment lawyer, uh, or corporate company lawyer that they actually have put that information on your job application for new hires so that you're not caught off guard after making a job offer and then realizing that this person needs first H-1B sponsorship and then the green card. And that might not have been in your company's budget um, when you hired the person. Fantastic. So that's the first part. This next part is the role of the law firm or attorney that's working with you as the employer in the green card process. And there's a lot of things that the lawyer and the attorney is allowed to do and not allowed to do. And a lot of time, the company or the individual will come to us at the Murthy Law Firm and say, hey, can you, I, I don't want to trouble my employer. They have agreed to help me process, but can you guys just, I'll pay you the legal fees, which first of all, as you know, is not legal and legally permitted under the law because the employer has to pay the perm portion of the legal fees per the Department of Labor regulations. But even more important is we as the attorney have, our hands are tied by law. There are restrictions on what you as an employer, we as the attorney and the foreign national candidate is allowed to do. So Derek, can I have you explain just a few of what is the role of the attorney and the restrictions, et cetera? Sure. So as Sheila mentioned, the attorney cannot interview applicants, and that's very important to keep that in mind, or make any decisions about the recruitment process. Now, there's one exception to that, and that is if you're an in-house counsel and you, you actually normally do the recruitment, then that's okay. But in general, attorneys cannot actually interview applicants or make the decisions regarding the recruitment process. The other thing the attorney can't do is screen resumes before the employer reviews them, determine if an applicant is qualified. The, the actual employer has to go through each resume and determine if this person is potentially qualified for the position. Now, even though that's correct, the attorney does play a role, and the attorney can advise about the legality of the decision to contact or not contact, and to make sure the employer is actually following the DOL regulations. Okay. And to go along with what Derek was saying, this means that the attorney can provide any advice on legal questions concerning compliance with governing statutes, regulation, and policies. 
in um, going back to what we previously spoke about, this can extend to qualified, willing, able, and available U.S. workers. If the employer determines that a candidate is not qualified, we, the attorney can also review the resume to make sure the rejection is lawful. The attorney can also not sign the recruitment report. Um, like I said, they can give advice on the statutes, regulation, and policies that uh, are available to you to, to see if the person is a qualified, willing, able, and available U.S. worker. But unfortunately, they cannot sign the recruitment report for you. Okay. So as you can see, there are a lot of things by law there are restrictions on what we are allowed to do and what you as an employer is required to do. And we understand how busy you all are, whether you're the president of the company, an HR person, person dealing with foreign nationals, etc. because your job is, and you think that here, I'm hiring the law firm and the lawyer to take care of all of these things for me so that I don't have to waste my time. But the Department of Labor and the USCIS do not allow the law firm, the attorney, and the foreign national to do all of these things that we just went over. Now, what is it that you as an employer absolutely needs to do? You, as Jessica Beaver just mentioned a few minutes ago, you need to actually review each resume that has been received either directly by you as the employer or if it's a supervised recruitment to the Department of Labor to determine if the person applying, the job applicant, meets the minimum requirements. And what, as Jessica just said, what are these minimum requirements? The education, the work experience, the training or special skills for the advertised position that was, as was indicated on the ETA 9089, which is the PERM application form. You cannot consider preferences. So, for example, if you say bachelor's required with three years work experience, but master's preferred and five years experience preferred, guess what? That is an EB3 job. That is not an EB2 job. And the preferences, according to Department of Labor, are only wishful thinking. They will not be able to enforce that. And you as an employer cannot reject a lawfully qualified U.S. worker because of certain employer preferences. Um, even if a person is not the best candidate but is minimally qualified, then you as the employer, unfortunately, is going to have to hire that person because Department of Labor says it's not the most qualified person like with the professors and tenure-track faculty members in the other process that is for university hiring, but in the regular PERM processing for regular employers or businesses, the Department of Labor requires only the bare minimum qualifications. So Derek, can I ask you to continue to explain the role of the employer and best practices for the employer? So it's really important when you go through this process to be very um, organized. Make sure you keep the resumes in a safe place and that you document all the contacts, whether it be by phone, email, or uh, letter, to the potential applicants. Make sure you have all this documentation because if there's an audit, and right now 40 to 50% of all cases get audits, they're going to ask for copies of all the resumes. They're going to ask for copies of phone lags. They're going to ask for documentation that you actually made these contacts, whether it be the email, phone, letter, whatever you use. And if you don't have them, they could actually deny your case. So keep it in a safe place. Don't send the resume. Contact the applicant within 10 days and 10 business days and make sure you keep all this documentation in order. Also, we find it's very helpful if you have a checklist or a chart so that as you go to each applicant, you can actually indicate why the applicant 
was either not qualified or was unable to form the job duties uh, listed in the application. So what Derek is talking about essentially is this, this good faith recruitment, this duty to investigate. For example, you don't want to go passively through, you know, leaving a voicemail and not making additional uh, good faith efforts to contact the applicant. What you may consider good faith recruitment to be in your normal practices, it may not be sufficient for this labor certification process. So just to reemphasize what Derek was speaking of, you know, if you call the applicant that's mentally qualified, you know, take documentation to show the person, the date, the time, everybody, every, uh, all the information for that person. Um, also, if you send any email, email makes a good, you know, record for itself. It's just, it's important to to kind of jump through these hoops, so to speak, for this process and to have that documentation. And so the good faith requirement is the sort of the bottom, like the base of it. But again, as Jessica said, it's not my good faith. Hey, this is what I do for everybody. Why should I do something differently? Well, that's why you hire the lawyer and that's why you have to go through the hoops with making Department of Labor feel comfortable that this was a lawful job related valid reason not to hire the applicant who is applying as a U.S. worker. Okay, Derek? The person who actually does the interview should really be the, the person who normally interviews any candidate for the company. So don't use a special person just for labor certification. It should really be done by the person who normally interviews applicants for positions in the company. Um, make sure, and this is critical, make sure that employees are not involved in the process at all. A lot of employees are very anxious, they're concerned, they want to know what's going on. It's really important that yes, you make sure that they know that your, their case is actually being processed, that, they're, that the employer is actually having contact with the attorney, but make sure they're not involved at all with the recruitment process, um, review of resumes, or any other part of the process. Also, if the resume is ambiguous, uh, let's say you're not positive that the person you know, may or may not be qualified for the position based on the resume alone, you really need to contact the applicant. If it's just to make sure that, in fact, you're correct and you're not making an assumption that's not true. Again, the Department of Labor could very well ask for these documentation in an audit, and if you're not clear about wh why this person was lawfully not qualified for the position, then they could come back and deny your case. So any kind of ambiguity has to be clarified before saying, well, it's obvious the person, you know, if you're not sure if there's a programming language that's critical, but it's the person didn't put it on their resume because they didn't mention every programming language in the world, you as the employer need to qualify, confirm, because if that's what was mentioned on the perm labor certification application, but the person has the relevant experience, you may want to spell that out or check on it and or make sure. Or if they say they have a bachelor's degree, but they don't specify what kind of bachelor's degree, Correct. don't assume that they don't have the appropriate one. Very good point. Right. So when in doubt, contact. Yeah. And like Derek was mentioning, contacting within that 10 business days, which is about 14 days um, from receiving re the resume, will show your good faith in order to do that. Similarly, you want to follow up the applicant directly. Like we said, don't just leave a voicemail. You know, don't speak with their spouse. Don't speak with someone that just lives in their household. You need to make sure that, you know, you're you're calling the number listed on the resume and documenting that. You know, if you email them, that you have a record of that. And finally, if they're just not responsive, that you're sending that certified mail return receipt to show your good faith effort to, to conduct this recruitment. You should be taking, like I mentioned, reasonably detailed notes of the, of the conversation. Um, you can also, you know, keep phone records. That way, like Derek mentioned, in the event of an audit, you have all of these notes and documents to show your attempts to contact. And one point about what Jessica mentioned about certified mail, I know it may seem sort of ridiculous right now, especially 
you know, in 2015, people are using certified mail to contact applicants, but it's really important that you actually show the Department of Labor that you had good faith recruitment. So if they don't respond to a phone call, if they don't respond to an email, then definitely send them a certified letter because you're going to be able to keep that in the compliance file in case there's an audit. Right. So, but I know most people think, oh, certified mail, snail mail, you know, back from the middle ages. And that's true that because 99% of the world will probably respond directly to the email. But if you don't hear back for some reason, and the person later files a complaint saying, I applied, I didn't get in, or the Department of Labor investigates and does an audit, you want to be able to show that you, in fact, not only left a voicemail and called on this date at this time, you send this email, which wasn't replied, and then third, you made this final contact, like both Jessica and Derek just discussed. And the rule is that you have to consider all resumes right up until the time of filing the perm labor certification. So the fact that, well, I think we're done, we only got like these four resumes, we're done. Well, no, if something else came in till we file, we need to be prepared to respond, contact the applicant, and ensure that we're doing what we need to do so that it won't get stuck. Also, a question that I'm often asked is, okay, we have only one position. It wasn't multiple positions at the company, which, by the way, we generally think is a very good idea if there are multiple openings or positions. But let's say you had mentioned only one, and somebody who was far better qualified than your foreign national candidate applies, meets every possible requirement, vows you in the interview, uh, and now you're like, gee, do I have to hire this person because now I'm going to have to fire this other employee who has been with me for three or four years? And the answer is actually, as an employer, you're not legally required to hire anyone that has been gone through the recruitment through the labor certification process. Because if you do find a qualified U.S. worker even though you don't need to hire that individual, you would not be allowed to continue the labor certification perm processing because now you did find the ready, willing, and able worker. So, but if you've mentioned multiple positions, then presumably you could hire that one fabulous candidate, still use that person, and continue with the green card for your applicant. So now let's move on to the don'ts for you as an employer in the recruitment process because a lot of people say, well, I think I understand what I'm supposed to do, but tell me clearly what I'm not supposed to do so I don't do something inadvertently in error. So, Derek, I'm going to have you start, and Jessica, if you want to jump in as well. Okay, so these are things you definitely should not do. Do not tell the applicant the position is filled by the foreign national or that's in support of a labor certification. Also, don't reject for overqualified applicants. We know that in the real world, if somebody seems to be overqualified or they're just using this job as a stepping stone, some people say, sorry, I'm not going to consider the person. In this process, you must consider the applicant if they meet the minimum requirements for the position. It doesn't matter if they're overqualified. It's also important, of course, not to ask illegal questions during the interview process. For example, about marital status, sexual orientation, disability, age, race, religion, um, where the person that uh, a citizenship. These are things that are illegal, and you definitely don't want to ask them. Now, going back to the question about um, that this is a, a process where you're trying to recruit a U.S. worker, the important thing to understand is that you can ask the question, are you, do you require a sponsorship to work in the U.S.? But don't go further. Don't ask where they're from. Don't ask if they're on H-1B status. Um, just ask that one question, and you should be okay. 
Yeah, similar mm-hmm. to what, what Derek was just saying is only ask if they do require sponsorship. Don't even specify which documents they have to show. You want to make sure that you're also complying with, you know, employment-based law as well. Um, also, you can't re- you cannot reject an applicant for subjective reasons. You know, they're not outgoing. Maybe they have a personality conflict or you don't think they would fit into the team. Um Unfortunately, these are not considered lawful job-related reasons, and so you want to stay away from from those. Derek, what about salary requirements? So, of course, if a candidate is not willing to accept the offer of salary, of course they can be disqualified. But it's very important to keep in mind that you can't just ask the candidate, what is your minimum salary requirement? And if their minimum salary requirement is too high, then outright reject them. In other words, they need to know exactly what is the offer salary for the position before you can reject that applicant. Right. And also if they live out, so we can't just reject because the person lives out of the area. For example, oh, this person's living in, uh, I'm on the East Coast, this person lives in Chicago, so I'm going to reject the person because the person may be ready to up and come move over to the East Coast. Um, So that's, so we are done with the don'ts. What you as an employer cannot and should not do, which is you can't reject the person because they live out of the area or because um, they, they, you know, you ask for certain requirements. So let's jump now to the recruitment report, which is what you as an employer summarize as the f- reasons and what you submit to the Department of Labor to hopefully get their blessings for the labor certification process. Right. So for the recruitment report, you're going to be describing these these steps that you've taken, um, like we just mentioned when you're contacting applicants, the number of resumes that you receive, the number of candidates that you've hired, and the number of U.S. workers rejected, kind of category, categorizing them by the reason for their lawful job, for the lawful job-related reason. This means, for example, that if you have um, applicants that didn't possess the education, you'd want to group them together. You know, other applicants that required sponsorship or didn't have experience, you know, group them together as well. Like we mentioned, um, the report must be signed by the employer. You'd have to provide this recruitment report in the event of an audit. And speaking of retention of documents, this recruitment report must be retained for five years along with the rest of the, the audit file. Okay. And in terms of the process itself, you know, um, it's obviously you need to take this process extremely seriously because it's a big deal. Derek, you want to say something? Sure. So as you can see from what we discussed, there's a lot involved in this process, and it's extremely important to take it seriously. It's possible for an employer to do all the recruitment properly, the two Sunday ads, the SWAT job order, the notice of posting, to do everything right, but then they mess up the, this results recruitment report, they don't actually do the interviews properly, and they end up getting a denial. Now the problem is that it takes a very long time to get a decision back from the Department of Labor. So if you get a denial, you may not know for up to a year and a half. Right now it's taking any between seven months and 16 months to get a decision, depending on whether an audit is received. So that's gonna be a real problem for your employee. It's gonna be a problem for you because you could very well lose an employee so make sure, make sure that you actually follow all these steps that we've discussed uh, and so you don't get a denial based on insufficient recruitment um, or bad faith recruitment. 
Yeah. And so as you can understand from this brief overview that we've given you, and we always try, as you know, to make our monthly conference calls at the Murti Law Firm for you as employers within the 30 to 45 minute time span uh, in the middle of the afternoon, maybe your lunch break or maybe a part of your learning lunch and learn series that you're doing with yourself on a monthly basis. The PERM process for labor certification is extremely complex and nuanced. Um, majority of the denials or problems that we end up getting are where uh, majority of the cases that we end up getting are the problems with denials from other law firms where a person has already invested two, three, four, five years. The case has gone and has been, for example, with Balka, the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals because the Department of Labor denies the case. They try for a request for reconsideration. That's denied. It then goes to Balka. Balka sits on it for two or three years, and then it's denied. Now you've lost four, five, six years, a possible priority date loss. And especially for those who are born in India or even China, that's like the kiss of death. For another five years, they don't even have an EB3 locked in priority date. They have basically nothing. The You as the employer have invested thousands and thousands of dollars, lots of your time, effort, and energy to make this process work. And uh, so it's very, very important that the lawyer, the legal team, the, the people you work with understand and are familiar with the Department of Labor, frequently asked questions, FAQs with their answers, the actual statute, the regulations, the guidance, and what we're seeing as trends so that if we see that, for example, doing a filling out an application with certain language is likely to result in an audit or a denial, even though they haven't written that anywhere, but our practice shows that we then turn it around and we turn on a dime. And that's what we you get by working with the great Murthy Law Firm team. And so we really want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. On behalf of Derek Seawall, Jessica Beaver, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us this afternoon. And we really look forward to helping you and your business and your company obtain successful perm labor certification approvals so that you can continue to focus on what you do best and we can continue to partner with you to guide and help you become successful and retain your top talent. Thank you so much. Have a great day.